I have a fellow sergeant with me today who I'm so excited to talk to. I have been talking about him for uh, quite a while, and, uh, and I want him to talk to you about some of the things that he has been through and, and how he has really taken a terrible situation that he and his, and his officers um, went through and is turning it into such a positive in his life and the lives of other police officers. Sergeant John Mattingly, welcome to the program. Thank you, good to be here. So if people don't uh, recognize your name, you were the uh, police sergeant that was badly injured in the Breonna Taylor, uh, Kenneth Walker shooting in Louisville, Kentucky. Just remind folks what happened that day. Uh, we were assisting another unit, wasn't our case, and uh, there were short bodies. It was a five warrants that they were serving simultaneously. And when we were assigned one of the one of the doors, which happened to be Brianna Taylor's, and uh, myself and six other detectives went to the door uh, that night, knocked and announced many times. They asked us to give this one a little bit longer because they were only really looking for um, materials relating to the to the other suspect in the case to draw it all together because it was kind of a, a conspiracy case is what they were looking to get. And so we gave her 45 seconds to a minute of knocking announcing, which is just unheard of when you're, you know, doing a drug warrant. It's way too long. And my gut kind of told me that from the beginning, but I was trying to honor what the lead investigator in this case wanted. And uh, as soon as the door was breached, they didn't answer after about a minute. So we breached the door. Uh, I cleared the right room from outside the doorway. And as soon as we stepped in the door to go clear the rest of the house, uh, was met with gunfire from down a long narrow hall from Kenneth Walker. And uh, tragically, Brianna Taylor was right next to him. They were, he was almost overlapping her. And as soon as he shot, he dove into the room and left her out in the hall by, by herself. And unfortunately she, uh, she was caught in the exchange of gunfire. So I wanna reiterate that uh, A, you did knock and announce, and I worked a narcotics unit for many years. And when you give somebody uh, the time to, uh, you know, when you do knock and announce almost a, you know, a minute there, that's time for them to gather their weapon or flush their evidence or run out the back door or, or whatever it is, right? And you gave them yeah. Uh, yeah, a we, lot of time and you obviously gave Kenneth Walker enough time to get his firearm mm -hmm. and, uh, and, you know, eventually use it on you. Brianna Taylor, I want to uh, reiterate, she was not asleep in her bed, right? No, maybe prior to us getting there, but once we started knocking, like you said, the, the whole point of, of knocking and, and moving quickly on a warrant is for that psychological advantage when you come through the door and people are asleep, they don't have time to get their bearings or you know, they may talk this big game, I'm gonna shoot out with the police, but generally they're so overwhelmed by the noise, by us yelling police, by us moving through the house that they give up. He had time to get up, get dressed, retrieve his firearm, tell her to come out with him and then be standing in the hall when we actually finally made entry. Well, and I want to say that had you uh, not knocked and announced, there's a real good, I would think that Brianna Taylor would still be alive and you probably wouldn't have been shot, right? No, no. And you wouldn't know who I was. It'd be a, it'd be a non-factor here. Exactly. Now, in this situation, so you go in and when you say, you know, you clear the rooms, it means you make sure there's no other bad guys in this net. And then Kenneth Walker, um, 
fires at you and you are hit uh, nearly in the femoral artery, right? Talk about what that was like getting shot. It wasn't nearly, it, it actually severed it. Okay. Um, so, well, the getting shot, it's funny how your brain works. Everybody's different, but mine, like, it was like an HD camera slowed down and, and saw the barrel of the gun and saw the fire and felt it uh, at the same time, but it was all so quick. I mean, we're talking milliseconds, um, but it was more like a, uh, like you hear on TV, it felt like a hot poker going through my leg, like somebody punched it or hit it with a baseball bat and a hot poker, but the adrenaline's up so much at that point, you don't really feel the pain, you're, you know, you go into survival mode uh, and your training kicks in and, and did what we needed to do and, and we got out of there alive. Well, and that's such an important point because now that we're in the era of defund the police, um, one of the things that's going to the wayside uh, is officer survival training, isn't it? Right. Yes. Yeah. They want you to be so passive and laid back that you, they make you the last priority on every run as opposed to you can't help anybody else if you're not alive or if, you know, the help's coming to help you, you're no good to anybody. After I returned fire, I reached down and felt my leg and I could feel a handful of blood. So, you know, through training, through 20 years of CPR class, you start, you know, these things just go, oh man, I know what that is. And I even said it after I got hissed, I got shot in my femoral or femoral or however you say it. I've been made fun of a few times for saying it that way. But um, so I, I immediately felt it and I thought in my mind, I can't stay on my, on my feet because my heart's pumping. I'm going to pump the blood out. So I sat back on my right hip. And, but then the gunfire was still going off above me. So my brain said, I got to get out of here. You know, I'm going to get shot by friendly fire if nothing else. So I jumped up and hobbled out to the street where um, I met my Lieutenant and he was able to get a tourniquet on me, which was, you know, like you said, there's very, there's very small space, two or three minutes that you have to get a tourniquet on or, or there's no hope for you. You're gone. Right. You have about, when you're shot in the femoral artery, you got about seven, eight minutes before yeah. you totally bleed out. So they get a tourniquet on you. And I want to point out to people that that tourniquet's not fun. That is as painful or more painful than getting shot, it's, isn't it? It's more painful. I'd really get shot again than have a tourniquet on my leg for 30 something minutes again. Yeah, that was, that was horrible. So they are able to get you to the hospital. Now, here you are, you're a sergeant, you're a supervisor, but, but now you're, you're a crime victim. So what happened um, after they got you to the hospital and got you stabilized? Did you, did you know that there was going to be this, or did you have any premonition that there was going to be this national uh, hoo-ha with this case? Well, not until I woke up from surgery that I even knew if anybody on the other side was shot. You know, the first thing I did was make sure all my guys were okay, um, which I was told that on the way to the hospital. None of us besides myself were injured, but... Uh, the next day I found out who was hurt or who was, you know, mortally wounded. And my first thought was, oh, great. Because ever since Ferguson, um, every time there's a police involved shooting in your agency, the first question you ask, and you shouldn't have to ask this because it shouldn't matter. But the first question you ask was, man, were they black or white? And you kind of hold your breath for a minute. And when they say they were white, you go, oh, thank God. You know, but the question should be, was it a justified shooting? Forget white or black or male, female, it doesn't matter. But unfortunately, we've been programmed the same by the media and by the outside pressures from all the, you can't do this, you better watch out for this. Or, you know, the boogie, big boogeyman's gonna come after you if, if you shoot a black person. And you're like, well, my goal isn't to go out and shoot anybody. You know, the, the, they brought this to us, we didn't bring it to them. And so, yes, my first thought was, this is not gonna be good. 
Now, the only thing we had going for us at the time, or so we thought was uh, March 13th was the day I was shot was the same day that they started the lockdowns nationwide for coronavirus. So that was just encompassing the news. It had taken over, you know, the daily briefs from the president, from your governors and all that stuff. So it was pushed back for a while. And we thought, I thought, man, okay, good. I was preparing to go back to work. I'm doing my rehab hard. I'm ready to go back to another warrant. I want to get back on the bike. You know, I just, let's go. And then um, Amada Aubrey happened and then George Floyd happened and it just exploded. This was uh, by all accounts uh, and still is today. It was what we call a good shoot. Uh, you know, you, you have not been charged with any crime or, or any of that. Um, but you find yourself, um, as did some of the other officers, in the middle of this international um, storm of misinformation. And I don't, I don't think there has been a police shooting that has more misinformation surrounding it than the Breonna Taylor case. 100% agree. You know, from, from day one, uh, their attorneys came out and said, we had the wrong apartment. Her name wasn't on the warrant. Well, her name was on the warrant. Her car was on the warrant. Her picture was on the warrant. It was all there from the beginning, from the get-go. They said she was asleep in bed. They said um, her attorney even at one point said we were there to rob them. I mean, and that's that's still going around on social media. That We, we were a group of thugs there to rob drug dealers. And I'm going... So we had a briefing with 40 or 50 guys who knew where we were going and we're going to go rob them. That just made, you know, just to ask, but people believe it, you know, it comes from an attorney or it comes from a news channel. So we must believe it. And that's the sad part about today is the misinformation. Cause once it goes out, you can't draw back in, you can't get in. You know, a few people might get corrected and believe you, but for the most part, I mean, even to this day, our city and department has never once got on and debunked any of the lies that was said. And this is what a year and, six, five months ago, and they've still never come out and said, you know, everything that was said here is wrong. Now if the investigation's over, we can talk about it, because that's what they have behind all the time, is, you know, we can't talk about an ongoing investigation. Well, you can release body cam footage within 24 hours, which is basically telling the story without telling the story, but you can't tell the real story. You know, you can't just debunk the lies. That's all we asked for, and I called down and said, can we please just get some truths out? And we were told, no, we can't set precedent for future cases. And I'm like, and that, city burn than to set precedent, <laughs> which you change your precedent all the time for whatever meets your needs anyway. You know, there's not set hard precedents. I mean, we know this in politics, it, it changes with the wind. Well, and here's the thing, you know, and that's the problem is this case has gotten so political. When, when, when you and I were hired to be young police officers, politics was, you know, we were told, you know, we don't need to know your politics. We don't care about your politics. You don't talk about your politics on the job. And now policing, and I think you're right, it's from Ferguson on, has become incredibly politicized. And and frankly, you're the victim of that. You're the victim of, of weak political leadership uh, in the city of Louisville, uh, who doesn't seem to want the truth of this story to get out. They'd rather have their police officers be thought of as racist thugs than to actually get the truth out about Brianna Taylor and her cohorts. This was not some, you weren't going in there uh, looking for, uh, you know, a bag of weed. This was a, a long-term multi-search warrant case and you were looking uh, for, uh, in Breonna Taylor's apartment, um, 
you know, money, possible documentation, things like that. And in fact, I want you to tell people um, why there was no drugs. You hear this a lot in the media. There was no drugs or money or anything found in the apartment. That's because nobody looked, isn't it? Nobody looked, none. So what happens when, when there's an officer-involved shooting is we have what's called a public integrity unit. They come out, they take over the scene. It's now their scene. And what they did was we had a warrant for narcotics and, and documents. They came in and they wrote their own warrant for the evidence of the shooting. So they could collect shell casings, take photos, diagrams, all the stuff they do, uh, typically like on a homicide scene. And so when they came in and did that, no, none of our unit was allowed in the, the apartment, which is, that's fine. The integrity of the case, it needs to be upheld that way. And but the problem is when they were done at 7.30 that morning, the detectives from the unit that we were helping requested to go back in and finish this. They're like, man, we got a cop shot over this. We haven't finished this. We need to go in and wrap this up. And leadership from downtown said, no, you're done. It's over. You can't even search. So nobody searched for drugs. Nobody searched for money. Nobody searched for documents. And we know for sure the documents and money were there. Who knows about drugs? Kenneth Walker had... 16, 17 minutes from the time the shooting happened before he finally came out. Uh, no telling what he was doing in there the whole time. And if you're not looking for it, you can hide a lot of things in, in 15, 16 minutes. Absolutely. So here you are, you nearly get shot and killed, just doing your job, trying to support your family. Um, then this whole shooting gets politicized and, uh, and all of a sudden you're out of town and you find yourself having to call your family and say, we got to go into hiding. Talk about that. Yeah. So the first time was a week before we actually got removed from our house. Um, we've been in this new house five weeks, maybe that we just purchased. And uh, I get a call saying, Hey, get somebody, get your family, you know, cause they were like, where are you at? And I'm like, well, I'm out of town right now. I'll be back in a couple of days. And they were like, well, we're going to send somebody over to, to pick your wife and kid up and take them somewhere. So they went to a location and so they worked it out. I came back home and about, five, six days later from the time I got home on a Sunday night, I got a call saying, hey, the FBI has cooperated these two different informants, uh, what they're saying about the hit that's out on your family and, and the other guys too, there was a hit on all three of us. And uh, you got to get out of your house, you got to go. So they came, they escorted us to another location um, out of the city. And um, that was it. I mean, it was, it was like, it was like a dream, you know, you'd seen this stuff in movies and and you think, uh, like we all do, it's not going to happen to me. And, you know, here we are. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you, and you're very open about this. You're a man of faith. And that is one of the things that has helped you um, get through this. You know, you really have every right to just be a really bitter, angry guy. And, uh, and you're not. And in fact, we're going to talk uh, in a minute about the, how you're moving forward. But but talk about your faith a minute and how that really helped you to get through all of this. Well, I was, my dad's a pastor. He's been one for, you know, I'm 48. It was before I was born. So he's 52 years, maybe he's been a pastor. And so I was raised in a Christian home. Um, haven't always acted like a Christian, but I, I was raised in a Christian home. And um, so when these things hit, it's kind of like your training. You go back to what was indoctrinated in me as a child and growing up and, that's what you rely on. And you know that there's something much bigger than you. I mean, that, that's one of the reasons we do this job anyway. We don't do it because, I mean, you do it because it's fun and because it's a paycheck. But for most of us, it's the calling. It's a desire to help other people. And the ultimate person that helps people is, is Jesus Christ, right? He came and, and sacrificed for us. 
So we're willing to go out and lay our life down for other people that we don't even know or people that hate us. Um, but that helped me get through it. And sometimes I would get bitter or I would get angry and be like, you know, for 21 years, I put my life on the line for these people. I've saved so, you know, a lot of people. I've helped people. I've given people stuff that nobody knows about. You know, there's a, so much stuff you've done as a police officer that never gets publicized. And then something like this happens. And now all of a sudden you're the enemy. And I'm thinking, man, this, this, this is so wrong. This is so backwards. But that bitterness would only eat me up. So I had to, you know, you got to give that to God. And there's still days that you get mad and stuff. But ultimately, you know, you just got to live your life and, and trust him. That's all I've done. Well, and you are moving forward. And, and one of the things that you're doing now is you're going out and you're training other police officers, talking about uh, not only your shooting, but how you're able to move forward. And that's something that's so important. And again, yet, uh, and you and I were talking before we uh, started the program, that here we are in this era of defund the police, where one of the things that is being attacked and taken out of budgets is training, especially officer survival training and what we call warrior training. Talk about how that warrior mentality helped to save you. Well, I, I credit this to, like a, when I talked to Brandon, a, a training officer named Travis Hatchell, who was, who was very drill sergeant-like. Is the only way I can define it. His dad was military, I believe, and and he was raised that way, and, and he played college football. So he was just a squared away guy. And one of the things he taught us was not if, but when you're in that situation, you've got to already have thought about it. You've got to already have a plan. You've got to already tell yourself, no matter if I'm shot, no matter if I'm punched, no matter what, I'm getting out of this. This is just a setback. We're moving forward. You know, I'm going to keep going, going, going. You're never out of the fight. And uh, that night, that's that's one of the things that popped in my head. I mean, because I'd gone over scenarios countless, countless times in your head where you're going to go do a raid, you're going to go do a rip on a, on a body or a package or something. And you're thinking, all right, well, what's my out or what is what's the end game here that that's going to happen? My survival wise, if if it goes bad. So that mentality was just kind of ingrained in us as police officers. And again, the warrior mentality isn't, I'm going to go fight the civilians or the citizens of my city. That's not what it's about. It's so misconstrued in the media. It's not me fighting you. It's me living to go home to my family. That's what the warrior mentality is about. Exactly. So what's that like now standing in front of your peers? And a lot of them are young um, and talking about your incident and moving forward. Um. I think the first thing they're shocked with, because most of us buy into this, um, I mean, we both got the thin blue line flag, because we are somewhat a family, but it's not, I don't think like it used to be as far as upper command having your back, because they are so political now, um, because now most cities have gone to appointed positions at the top, you know, not just your chiefs appointed, now our majors over our divisions are appointed, so there's a lot of leverage over them and they've started promoting people who are younger, who have a lot of years left because there's a lot of control over those people. It's not like the old days where we had captains and they'd come in and the chief would say something or the mayor and the captain be like, you're not going to demote me. So here's what we're doing the right thing. You know, they would just go out, put their neck out on the line for you. Well, now nobody's putting their neck out on the line for you. I mean, it's all self-preservation at the top. Everything is. And where's my next job when I leave here? And, and how can I climb the rank one more ladder? And so you're going to get thrown under the bus. And that's what I kind of had to tell these guys, be careful because the, the people you think are your friends today, 
when they're put on that spot to protect you, to back you, not all of them are going to be there. Matter of fact, most of them aren't going to be there. You're going to look around and go, I've known these guys forever. Where are they? And no phone calls, no reaching out on your behalf, you know, none of that. So that's the first thing I tell them. Then the, the other thing is, is who to depend on, you know, your close friends, your family, your faith, all these things that you've got to wrap yourself in, or you will become bitter and lost. And we were, uh, if I can say this real quick, we were down in, my wife's part of the National Police Wives Association now. Uh, since this happened, she got in contact with some people and, and it's been a really good thing for her and for spouses. And we were down in Baton Rouge and they've started a, I think they're the first one in the nation. They've started a program where they got doctors on board in the hospital and they've got their own, it looks like a workout area in the front where guys can go in and work out, but then there's mental health professionals in the back that they can go talk to. So it's not like you're walking in a doctor's office because we've all got that stigma and that, that little bit of, we keep our guard up a little bit too much um, to protect others. And we think we're protecting ourselves, but we're just hurting ourselves. So they've started this thing. It's amazing down there. And it's just to get guys to go, Hey, okay, this is a front. I can go in the front, look like I'm working out, but then I'm going to do, I'm going to work out on my mind too, not just my body. And um, so mental health is important. I think that's one of the things I stress to these guys also, not only you, but your kid, your spouse, if you're involved in one of these critical incidents, uh, your whole family needs some, some talking to Absolutely, John. I wish we had more time, but we're going to have you back when the book comes out. But until then, uh, where can people find you? Where can they follow you? Uh, on Twitter, it's at Sergeant SGT Mattingly. And on Instagram, it's at Sergeant John Mattingly. John, thanks so much for spending time with us today. And if you would like more information about the National Police Association, visit us at nationalpolice.org. Ma'am, put the gun down! Last year, law enforcement officers were involved in hundreds of thousands of use of force incidents. A use of force incident is when an officer must use nonverbal tactics to gain control of a dangerous situation. Put the knife on the ground. In many cases, officers have no choice but to use force when a suspect doesn't comply with a lawful order. Use of force is always ugly. No one likes it, especially police officers. Together, we can help de-escalate these dangerous encounters. Help police officers by complying with their lawful orders. Don't attack, attempt to disarm, or flee from an officer. Use of force is an officer's last option. Most incidents can be avoided by not resisting arrest. If you feel you've been wrongfully detained by a police officer, then seek a legal solution after the encounter has been resolved. Let's keep everyone safe. Comply now and complain later.